Hello, I'm Christine Malika, PhD, and this is Interview with a Therapist. I'm a licensed psychologist, and each episode, I will be asking 10 questions to a professional in the field of mental health. Please note, in order to protect current or former clients' privacy in accordance with HIPAA and confidentiality laws, all identifying information has been changed. Hello, and welcome to Interview with a Therapist. Have you ever struggled with sleep difficulties? Did you know there are sleep psychologists who specialize in treating sleep disorders? We have one today on our show. Dr. Julie Grant is a licensed psychologist who is board certified in behavioral sleep medicine. She currently practices in the Atlanta metropolitan area, and we are going to chat with her about her work and her views on therapy. Dr. Grant and I go way back to our doctoral training days at the University of Miami, Go Canes. Welcome, Dr. Grant. How are you today? I am doing fantastic. How are you, Doc? I'm good, and it's a pleasure to have you today. So let's talk. Here we go. Which psychologist or figure in the field do you most admire? Well, I'm going to give a two-part answer, if I may. Um, In my particular field, there's a gentleman by the name of Dr. Matthew Walker, who is really a sleep guru. He's actually a neuroscientist, so he is not in the mental health field, strictly speaking. But he is really the go-to guy for understanding how to take really dense information about sleep and sleep science and understand it and help people understand why sleep is so important. So in our field, that's really someone that we lean into a lot and really appreciate uh, the work that he's gotten out to talk to people about sleep. In our field, and specifically, I would say I've always been very drawn to Carl Rogers mm. and his general belief that a lot of what we can do to help understand where people are versus where they want to be is helping to view it through a framework of where they believe they are and where they ideally want to be. And I've always loved that framework. Mm-hmm. And I think I always think to some degree in that framework when I'm working with people. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, which case will you never forget? Hmm. The very first beginning to completion termination treatment case that I had with a sleep patient, I would say is probably the one that I remember most and that I will always reflect on because it really solidified for me that sleep is such a core pillar of a person's health Mm. that when you can really start with a person who has struggled for a long time in a lot of elements of their lives and follow them all the way through to completion and see how much better they are mentally, physically, emotionally. It is pretty gratifying to see. And so when I worked with a woman uh, from start to finish and saw that transformation, it really solidified for me that the work is just so important to help people. Vitamin S, right? Yeah, absolutely. And did you have these interests in sleep psychology back in Miami, or was this after licensure and after uh, fellowships and stuff? That is a great question. I did not. I had a 
general interest in women's health and women's mental health with a specific focus on helping figure out how we can be a little more preventive-minded with women, especially through various transitions in their lives. And so when I wandered into the sleep field, it seemed a really obvious place that those two things went together, that we know that sleep and physical health, sleep and mental health are all very intimately tied together. And we also know that women's sleep patterns change fairly predictably through the lifespan. So the two kind of went together. And I was drawn to it again initially because I have a really strong interest in working with women and women's health and women's mental health. And then when I landed in the field, I just really fell in love with the work. And so now I do consider myself to remain that as my overall focus on mm-hmm. women, but with the specialization in sleep that really helps me feel like I'm making a big difference in that particular population. Yeah. Like I've been surprised, um, when I'm doing my continuing ed and here in Pennsylvania, we have to do um, one on suicide risk and a assessment for every um, renewal. Yeah. And for years now, they've been um, sort of making the point that sleep disturbance is a major, major factor for suicide risk. And I know that that wasn't really how it was presented back when we were being trained. Like, sure, if the person was bipolar and manic and they hadn't slept in days, that was like one thing. But just just basic people who are having sleep disturbances and not getting their sleep if they're depressed, you better be paying close attention because now they're at a higher risk of um, of suicide or harming themselves. And that's something that I've been seeing sort of come out more and more in my continuing education. Is that a newer thing in the last 10 years or not? Well, so the question is a little bit complicated. We have been working in the field for a while to help understand the bi-directional nature, really, of sleep disturbances and how that ultimately affects, again, physical health and mental health. I think that there has been some very strong research in the past decade that shows perhaps a that sleep disturbances can be what we call prodromal to a a major depressive episode, meaning Mm. that might be some of the first signals that are coming that someone is about to enter into a severe depressive episode. That might be one of your first clues. So again, we don't know which, which one is which, but sometimes we, that's where the relationship enters in that it can be such a um, double whammy, if you will, for people who are struggling with severe depression, especially And then to have sleep disturbances on top of that. It also, we understand now that sleep disturbances, excuse me, have an effect of dysregulating our emotion centers, which, as you know, uh, from a suicide risk standpoint, is that's where we lose people quite a bit, where they kind, they, they lose their sort of frontal lobe ability to, to make good decisions, if you will, that they're so driven by the emotion that that part, that part of their brain takes over and their kind of reasonable side of their brain is not really coming to task, really, mm-hmm. if you will. And so when we get people in chronic sleep deprivation and chronic sleep disturbances, we do feel like that's one of the newer understandings of why we see the suicide risk go up very high because we really kind of lose our rational side of the brain mm-hmm. and it opens up people to make 
what I think we can all believe is an irrational decision to try to take one's life. Right. Okay. That helps uh, explain that. Well, yeah. Okay. Julie, what is the most frustrating thing about your job? About my job? I would say, well, right now it is difficult in a pandemic to feel like I never get to meet people face to face. That would be the most frustrating thing now. Cause mm-hmm. a lot of, as you know, the work we do is very personal and it's very interactional and we can do it. We've certainly learned for the past year how to function on uh, telemedicine platforms, but that part is hard now, I think, to not really get that one-on-one connection that we get in the room with a person to try to help them. I would say right now, that would be probably the most frustrating thing, generally speaking, about my job. Sure. Well, what do you consider your biggest professional success? I would say probably getting through my board certification. Oh, yeah. Congratulations, by the way. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. My, you know, my particular field sort of straddles in between medicine and mental health. And so there's a ton of people in the mental health field that really don't have any need whatsoever to go through board certification. It doesn't make them any more qualified. It doesn't make them any better therapists. And so it's not really a, a process that I had thought too much about until I got in this field. But because we do have such a crossover and there's so much of an element of sleep medicine in the work that we do, it is really important in our field. Um, There's a very tiny handful of us that do this work across the country and even worldwide. So it was really um, a difficult path. It it required a a lot of very specialized training and a a lot of uh, production of work and, of course, a, a board exam and a board meeting in front of the uh, licensing group. And so there's a, there's a whole process that goes through. I would say that was something I never really thought I was going to have to tackle. Didn't ever necessarily think was something that would be important for me. Mm-hmm. But when I got it, yes, that, that was very much a, a cherry on top of the career that I've had so far. Yeah. What an accomplishment to get that board for people who don't know. Julie's talking about oral exams, um, written case studies to be presented, um, making sure you have a, the proper hours of training behind you in this area of sleep. It, it's probably took a year or two, I would imagine, to go through the process. It did. between yeah. Yes, it took about two years in total between the training and all the documentation and studying for the board exam and passing, sort of getting all the check marks under your belt. Yes, it's a mm-hmm. long process, but it's yeah. worth it. It's worth it. Well, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, how does being a psychologist affect your home life? Wow. I get this question a lot when people, and I'm sure you do as well. I think, you know, it's an interesting, for me, I'll have to say this goes probably counter to what you hear most therapists tell our, the people we work with to do. But I would say it, it requires you to compartmentalize more than we probably recommend people do Mm. because as you know it often just requires you to leave it at the door to leave it at the office to leave it at your desk in order to put yourself fully back into your family and your children and I think that I often use the space either the physical space or the commuting mental space whatever you want to call it when I transition from work to home as 
really my debrief. I think I've always done that. Another problem with telemedicine during the pandemic, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's been much harder to walk from my home office to 20 feet to the rest of the house and then try to kind of decompress, debrief away from treatment all day long. And so I think that I have gotten that skill down pretty well. There are days that it's harder than others and you just uh, do the best you can to try to set it aside and come back to it. I don't think I've ever gotten to a place where I felt like I couldn't function well as what it requires for me to be a mom and a wife and otherwise community member. But that's generally the way that I've always handled it is to try to really put a box around it, set it aside, come back to it when I'm back in that arena. Or again, whether that's Mm. mentally in that arena or physically in that arena or both, that's typically the way that I try to keep it from affecting my family. Okay. And and here's the other side of that, this question. How do you deal with burnout and or vicarious traumatization? Well, that I would say has been much more of my learning curve as I've been farther along in my career of working on the clinical side. I think I've really learned that whether or not you think you need a downside to everything that's happened in your day, you do always that there is the, you know, the filling up of your cup analogy that the work that we do really does drain you. It's really, it's physically draining, draining, it's emotionally draining. And even if it has been a great day with great cases and everyone's successful and you feel like the best therapist ever, you still walk away with a lot of stuff. And I think that over time, I figured out there always has to be some level of kind of letting that go and letting that stress out. So for me, it's either exercise, it's meditation, it's even sitting in nature has probably become one of my most favorite things to do to kind of, again, get myself out of an office setting and, you know, and indoors and a natural lighting and a natural ventilation and, and just breathe some fresh air no matter how cold or rainy or snowy, maybe not blizzard like it is there, but certainly um, doing that kind of stuff really on a regular basis and not waiting until you feel like you've tapped out your reserves. That's been my go-to. Thank you. Uh, What is something you remember learning from a patient? You know, I think I always am thinking in terms of the courage that it takes for people to be willing to talk to someone they don't know about things that are deeply personal, deeply difficult, um, oftentimes for them at least embarrassing, and the courage it takes to open oneself up to be willing to change to be willing to hear things that are difficult to hear or difficult maybe to accept from someone like us in the work that we do. I'm really always amazed that people do what they do and that they're able to kind of set aside all of that stuff and just live in bravery really to do the kind of work that they're coming to us to do. And so I feel like that's what I always learn. I'm always reminded that 
that's what it requires of people to do. And it's really kind of awesome that we get to see that in people's lives all the time, that ability to just have that kind of courage with their lives. I think I always learned that from them. Oh, agreed. A hundred percent. Um, if you weren't a psychologist, what career do you think you would be? I think I would probably be a writer. I really have always had that idea that I would love to be able to write. And when you get that question of, you know, what would you do if it, you didn't really need the money or you just did it to be happy? Mm-hmm. That would probably be the secondary thing I love my job. I wouldn't change it really. Um, I love what I do, but that's always been with me. I've always loved the idea of writing, uh, especially fiction, nonfiction. I'm open up to really anything. Not, not I was, was going to ask, not, oh, what would you write? <laughs> yeah. No, I think I, I always, I love to read fiction. I love to read historical fiction. I love to read all kinds of fiction. So I wouldn't necessarily be driven not to technical writing and not to in, in um autobiographical memoir type of thing, though I do think people in our field could produce remarkable memoirs, mm. but that's never been sort of what I've been drawn to, but I've always liked to write. I, I, I've always enjoyed it. So I feel like that's probably the most logical thing that I might do if I wasn't doing that. Very cool. Mm-hmm. If you could make one change to the field of psychotherapy, what would it be and why? Let's see. I think in general, it's probably what every single therapist and everyone that works in our field would say that would be that we could magically make the stigma of coming to see someone like us just go away. And it just becomes, you know, if you break your arm, you go to see the orthopedic surgeon. And if you break your emotions and you don't know how to fix it, you go to see a mental health specialist. I think that's always going to be a struggle. I think anytime in our lifetimes, the work that we do, I would say that's probably the thing that I would most love to change is just taking away the stigma that still remains in the mental health field. That would probably yeah, be my biggest. That's dream. a good, that's a good point. Um, do you follow any religious or spiritual path? I have actually, that is such a great question. I was introduced to mindfulness as one of the cognitive techniques that we use in sleep treatment a lot. And I had only really very passing awareness, knowledge of mindfulness. In fact, I think I often thought basically you can interchange mindfulness and meditation as kind of the same thing. And they're really not. Um, I do meditate and I love meditation, but I would say that that is kind of, for me clinically, but also for me personally, that would probably be my answer is that there's a lot of amazing work to be done with mindfulness. I know people probably don't traditionally think of that as a spiritual path, but mm-hmm. that's that's what I consider it because there's so much of learning how to relate to our inner world that comes with mindfulness and learning how to let go of that which is not helpful and to hold on to those things that are and to be forgiving and to be graceful 
with our inner world is really, to me, the secret sauce of mindfulness. So when I was introduced to that as part of my training and my clinical work, that really has stuck with me. And I feel like that is in many ways what a lot of the great spiritual teachings across a lot of different beliefs are, are a fairly common what you're coming back to is that sort of inner experience and what that looks like to, to live in our world and learning how to be really the best human that you can be. And I feel like that goes across, that's applicable to really all of the, the large organized religions and any other really spiritual practice, I believe. So that's been another gift, I would say, that the field has given me because I have definitely used that and definitely use that with the people that I work with all of the time. That's great. Thank you. I know I said 10 questions, but I always have this bonus one at the end because I always like to give people a chance to tell me and the the audience, what would you wish to tell all the non-therapists that are listening right now? If there's one message you could give to people outside the field, what would that be? Gosh, that one. Yes, I can tell you. That's a great question too. I would say this might sound really a a strange answer to the question, but the very first thing that comes to mind is to tell everyone, we do not judge you. Mm, Good. Right. You You come with a lot of stuff. And again, it's, I know, I feel like everybody that comes to see us on some level thinks that they're, you know, the strangest case you'll ever talk to or, their history is so sorted that there's no way that we are not judging you. And we really, really are not. I cannot express that enough that that is not a part of what we do, that we are trying to understand what your life has been like in our tiny little slice of time that we get with you. But our, our inclination, our training, our heart, I believe, is never ever about judging you for the stuff that you're telling us about or the stuff that you want help with or things that you've been through in the past. So I feel like that's on my heart to tell people that, that that's not what we do. That's not what we're here for. That's not what this is about. So if that's ever something that holds you back from going to see a therapist or if it ever holds you back in the therapy room, then I'm just going to offer that to you to try to let that go because we really are not doing that at all. That's a really beautiful answer. And I really appreciate that because I think um, that is a fear that a lot of people carry um, and that it does keep them out. What are they going to think? What are are they going to, you know, and really on a basic level, like you said, there isn't even time to be judging you, even if we wanted to be, because we're there trying to understand you, just to use your own words, you know, we're trying to understand in this small little amount of time. And we've heard it all before. There's a universality amongst patients and the experiences they've had and what brings people to feel depressed or anxious that we truly understand as opposed to judging. We truly have heard it before and seen it before and sort of know where you're coming from but you, the way you said it of course was was much nicer <laughs> but that's um <laughs> yes that that's a great point to make um I can't believe it that went so fast but it was so interesting to hear about the work you're doing now in a very uh, specific area of sleep 
And I'm so glad well, that you're doing that for people out there because as we're learning, sleep is sort of the foundation, one of the foundations of mental health. <laughs> and if you don't have that, you know, it's really hard. Like that should have been the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It should have been a good night's sleep. <laughs> it should have been the, the, yes. the bottom of the pyramid. But um, I really appreciate you coming on the show today and I wish you luck in your future and in the practice. And I'm very grateful for the work you're doing helping people with sleep. Well, I want to say thank you to you. What a what a fascinating concept and what a great way to get out to the the world, really, that this is what it's like to do the work that we do. I'm sure a lot of people are quite interested in listening to what all the backgrounds and what all the different people from the different fields respond to that question. I love this idea and I'm super proud oh, to you. not only support you, but um, I think it, it's conceptually such a great idea and such a gift to people to be able to do. So I'm quite honored that I was a part of it and wish you the absolute best of success. Uh, well, thank you so much, Julie. And You are uh, most welcome. Hopefully we will hear more soon. Thank you for joining us on Interview with a Therapist. As always, I hope these episodes both help humanize the therapist and help destigmatize seeking mental health treatment. If you are interested in seeking therapy, apa.org backslash help center is one place to start. If you are a family member of someone seeking help, nami.org can be useful. That's nami.org. You can find us on Instagram at Interview Therapist. Please note that comments or messages on social media are not monitored regularly and is not to be used for any treatment concerns or emergencies. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 911 in your local area or call 1-800-273-8255 nationally. This podcast does not constitute therapeutic advice or treatment.